To reason with a man against the views which arise from melancholy is commonly as inefficacious as reasoning against bodily pain. I have long made this a criterion to ascertain whether the dejection experienced was owing to a, a physical cause, for in that case argument, though demonstrative, has no effect. Still such persons should be affectionately conversed with, and their peculiar opinions and views should rarely be contradicted. Cases often occur in which there is a mixture of moral and physical causes, and these should be treated in reference to both sources of their affliction. Melancholy is sometimes hereditary and often constitutional. When such persons are relieved for a while, they are apt to relapse into the same state as did William Cooper. The late excellent and venerable James Hall of North Carolina was of a melancholy temperament, and after finishing his education at Princeton, he fell into a gloomy dejection which interrupted his studies and labors for more than a year. After his restoration, he labored successfully and comfortably in the ministry for many years, even to old age, but at last was overtaken again and entirely overwhelmed by this terrible malady. Of all men that I ever saw, he had the tenderest sympathy with persons laboring under religious despondency. When on a journey, I have known him to travel miles out of his way to converse with a sufferer of this kind, and his manner was most tender and affectionate in speaking to such. I have remarked that persons who gave no symptoms of this disease until the decline of life have then fallen under its power, owing to some change in the constitution at that period, or some change in their active pursuits. I recollect two cases of overwhelming melancholy in persons who appeared in their former life as remote from it as any that I ever knew. The first was a man of extraordinary talents and eloquence, bold and decisive in his temper, and fond of company and good cheer. When about fifty-five or six years of age, without any external cause to produce the effect, his spirits began to sink, and feelings of melancholy to seize upon him. He avoided company, but I had frequent occasion to see him, and sometimes he could be engaged in conversation, when he would speak as judiciously as before, but he soon reverted to his dark and melancholy mood. On one occasion he mentioned his case to me, and observed with emphasis that he had no power whatever to resist the disease, and, said he, with despair in his countenance, I shall soon be utterly overwhelmed. And so it turned out, for the disease advanced until it ended in the worst form of mania, and soon terminated his life. The other was a case of a gentleman who had held office in the American army during the Revolutionary War. About the same age, or a little later, he lost his cheerfulness, which had never been interrupted before, and by degrees sank into a most deplorable state of melancholy which, as in the former case, soon ended in death. In this case, the first thing which I noticed was a morbid sensibility of the moral sense, which filled him with remorse for acts which had little or no moral turpitude attached to them. I would state, then, as a result of all my observation, that religion, in its regular and rational exercise, has no tendency to melancholy or insanity, but the contrary, and that religion is the most effectual remedy for the disease, whatever be its cause. But melancholy persons are very apt to seize on the dark side of religion, as affording food for the morbid state of their minds. 
True Christians, as being subject to like diseases with others, may become melancholy, but not in consequence of their piety. But in this melancholy condition, they are in a more comfortable as well as in a safer state than others. They may relinquish all their hopes, but they cannot divest themselves of their pious feelings. I have said nothing respecting the supposed tendency of strong religious feelings to produce insanity, for what has been said respecting melancholy is equally applicable to this subject. Indeed, I am of opinion that melancholy is a species of insanity, and in its worst form, the most appalling species, for in most cases insane persons seem to have many enjoyments arising out of their strange misconceptions, but the victim of melancholy is miserable. He is often suffering under the most horrible of all calamities, black despair. When a child I used to tremble when I read Bunyan's account in his Pilgrim of the man shut up in the iron cage. And in the year 1791, when I first visited the Pennsylvania hospital, I saw a man there who had arrived a few days before, said to be in a religious melancholy and to be in despair. He had made frequent attempts on his own life, and all instruments by which he might accomplish that direful purpose were carefully removed. Having never been accustomed to see insane persons, the spectacle of so many deprived of reason made an awful impression on my mind. But although some were raving and blaspheming in their cells, and others confined in straitjackets, the sight of no one so affected me as that of this man in despair. Although near half a century has elapsed since I beheld his sorrowful countenance, there is still a vivid picture of it in my imagination. We spoke to him, but he returned no answer, except that he once raised his despairing eyes, but immediately cast them down again. Whether this man had been the subject of any religious impressions, I did not learn. But this one thing I must testify, that I never knew the most pungent convictions of sin to terminate in insanity. And as to the affections of love to God and the lively hope of everlasting life producing insanity, it is too absurd for anyone to believe it. I do not dispute, however, that enthusiasm may have a tendency to insanity. Enthusiasm used here in the sense of infatuation. And some people are so ignorant of the nature of true religion as to confound it with enthusiasm. I will go further and declare that after much thought on the subject of enthusiasm, I am unable to account for the effects produced by it in any other way than by supposing that it is a case of real insanity. Diseases of this class are the most dangerous because they are manifestly contagious. The very looks and tones of an enthusiast are felt to be powerful by everyone, and when the nervous system of anyone is in a state of easily susceptible emotions from such a cause, the dominion of reason is overthrown, and wild imagination and irregular emotion govern the infatuated person who readily embraces all the extravagant opinions and receives all the disturbing impressions which belong to the party infected. Without a supposition such as the foregoing, how can you account for the fact that an educated man and popular preacher and a wife intelligent and judicious above most, having a family of beloved children, should separate from each other, relinquish all the comforts of domestic life, and a pleasant and promising congregation to connect themselves with a people who are the extreme of all enthusiasts, the Shakers? 
But such facts have been witnessed in our own times and in no small numbers. In a town in New Hampshire, the writer, when in the neighborhood, was told of the case of a young preacher who visited the Shaker settlement out of curiosity to see them dance, in which exercise their principal worship consists. But while he stood and looked on, he was seized with the same spirit and began to shake and dance too, and never returned but remained in the society. But there being no demand for his learning or preaching talents, whatever they might be, and he being an able-bodied man, they employed him in building some stone fences. This species of infatuation, which is called enthusiasm, is apt to degenerate into bitterness and malignity of spirit towards all who do not embrace it, and then it is termed fanaticism. This species of insanity, as I must be permitted to call it, differs from other kinds in that it is social, or affects large numbers in the same way, and binds them together by the link of close fraternity. It agrees with other kinds of monomania, in that the aberration of mind relates to one subject, while the judgment may be sound in other matters. No people know how to manage their agricultural, horticultural, and mechanical business more skillfully and successfully than the Shakers, and the newer sect of Mormons would soon settle down to peaceable industry if the people would let them alone. This country promises to be the theater of all conceivable forms of enthusiasm and fanaticism, and as long as these misguided people pursue their own course without disturbing other people, they should be left to their own delusions, as it relates to the civil power. But if any of them should be impaled by their fanatical spirit to disturb the peace, they should be treated like other maniacs. The causes of melancholy and insanity, whether physical or moral, cannot easily be explored. The physician will speak confidently about a lesion of the brain, but when insane persons have been subjected to a post-mortem examination, the brain very seldom exhibits any appearance of derangement. The casuist, on the other hand, thinks only of moral causes, and attributes the disease to such of this class as are known to have existed, or flees to hypotheses which will account for everything. There is a remarkable coincidence, however, which has fallen under my observation, between those who assign a moral and those who assign a physical cause for melancholy and madness, in regard to one point. Some forty or fifty years ago, the writer, about the same time, read Thomas Shepard's Sincere Convert and James Robe on Religious Melancholy, and he noticed that they both ascribed the deep and fixed depressions of spirits frequently met with to a secret criminal indulgence. In the statistics of several insane asylums and penitentiaries, which have been published recently, the most of the cases of insanity are confidently ascribed to the same thing as its physical cause. This increase in evil is of such a nature that we cannot be more explicit. Those who ought to know the facts will understand the reference. It must, after all, be admitted that the claims of intemperance and the use of intoxicating drinks to a deleterious influence on the reason stand in the foremost rank, but the madness produced by this cause is commonly of short duration. I do not speak of that loss of reason which is the immediate effect of alcohol on the brain, but of that most tremendous form of madness called delirium tremens. 
I have said that it was short because it is commonly the last struggle of the human constitution under the influence of a dreadful poison which has now consummated its work and death soon steps in and puts an end to the conflict. After spending so much time in speaking of melancholy as a disease, I anticipate the thoughts of some good people who will be ready to say, What? Is there no such thing as spiritual depression, times of darkness and temptation, which are independent of the bodily temperament? To which I answer that I fully believe there are many such cases, but they deserve a separate consideration and do not fall within the compass of my present design. The causes, symptoms, and cure of such spiritual maladies are faithfully delineated by many practical writers, and although these cases are entirely distinct from melancholy, they assume, in many respects, similar symptoms, and by the unskillful casuists are confounded with it. These two causes, as I have before intimated, may often appear together and produce a mixed and very perplexing case, both for the bodily and spiritual physician. After all that has been said, the fact with which we commenced is that religious exercises are very much modified by the temperament, and, in some cases, by the idiosyncrasy of the individual. The liquor put into an old cask commonly receives a strong tincture from the vessel. Old habits, although a new governing principle is introduced into the system, do not yield at once and propensities apparently extinguished are apt to revive and give unexpected trouble. It is a comfortable thought that these bodies cannot go with the saints to heaven until they are completely purified. What proportion to our present feeling will be dropped with the body, we cannot tell. How a disembodied spirit will perceive, feel, and act, we shall soon know by consciousness. But, if ever so many of the departed should return and attempt to communicate to us their present mode of existence, it would be all in vain. The things which relate to such a state are inconceivable and unspeakable. What Paul saw in the third heaven he dare not, or he could not, communicate. But he did not know whether he saw these wonderful things in the body or out of the body. This was a thing known, as he intimates, only to God. Chapter 5. Effect of Sympathy Illustrated. Cautions in relation to this subject, a singular case in illustration. The causes already considered, which modify religious experience, relate to Christians as individuals. But man is constitutionally a social being, and religion is a social thing, so that we cannot have a complete view of this subject without considering them as they stand connected with others and especially as they are influenced by one another. There is a mysterious bond called sympathy by which not only human beings but some species of animals are connected. It is much easier on this subject to state facts than to account for them. A man cannot go into any company without being sensible of some change in his feelings. Whatever passion agitates those around him, he involuntarily participates in the emotion. And the mere external expressions of any feeling often produces the same expression in himself, whether it be yawning, smiling, crying, or coughing. And this must be affected by an assimilation of the mind of the beholder to the state of mind which produced the external act. The wilder and stronger the passions which agitate others, the more we are affected by them. This operation of mutual sympathetic excitement 
when many persons are brought together under some agitating influence, produces a stream of emotion which cannot easily be resisted, and far above what any one of the crowd would have felt if the same cause had operated on him alone. Hence, the ungovernable fury of mobs carry in desolation and often murder in their train, and yet the ringleaders, had they been alone, would have experienced no such violence of passion, and hence the danger in large cities of permitting multitudes of undisciplined people to assemble promiscuously. A mob is an artificial body, pervaded by one spirit, by the power of sympathy, for which the French have an appropriate phrase, esprit de corps. If there be anything in animal magnetism which has of late made so much noise, besides sheer imposture, it must be grafted on this principle. For the extent to which human beings may influence one another by contact or proximity in certain excitable states of the nervous system has never been accurately ascertained. And those remarkable bodily affections called the jerks, which appeared in religious meetings some years ago, the nervous irregularity was commonly produced by the sight of other persons thus affected, and if, in some instances, without the sight. Yet by having the imagination strongly impressed by hearing of such things, it is a fact, as undoubted as it is remarkable, that, as this bodily affection assumed a great variety of appearances in different places, nothing was more common than for a new species of the exercise, as it was called, to be imported from another part of the country by one or a few individuals. This contagion of nervous excitement is not unparalleled, for whole schools of young ladies have been seized with spasmodic and epileptic fits in consequence of a single scholar being taken with the disease. There are many authentic facts ascertained in relation to this matter, which I hope some person will collect and give to the public through the press. It will not be thought strange, then, that sympathy should have a powerful influence in increasing and modifying the feelings which are experienced in religious meetings, nor is it desirable that it should be otherwise. This principle, no doubt, is liable to abuse, and when unduly excited may be attended with disagreeable and injurious effects, but without it how dull and uninteresting would social worship be, when a whole assembly, in listening to the same evangelical discourse, or praising God in the same divine song, or sitting together around the same sacramental table, are deeply affected, they form, as it were, one body, and the whole mass is melted down and amalgamated into one grand emotion. They seem to have but one heart and one soul, and as harmoniously as their voices mingle in the sacred song of praise to the Redeemer, do their feelings amalgamate in one ascending volume towards heaven. The preacher who is privileged to address such an assembly seems to have before him one great body, having many eyes, but one soul. Hence we see the reason why a company thinly scattered over a large house always appears cold and uncomfortable, while the same persons brought near together in a small house have an entirely different appearance. And also we see why social meetings in private houses are felt by sincere Christians to be more profitable often than the more solemn assemblies of the church. And, upon the same principle, all worshippers feel more animated when surrounded by a multitude. But it is in times of revival or general awakening that the power of this principle manifests itself most evidently. And it is no evidence of a spurious work that the sympathies of the people are much awakened, or that many are led to seriousness by seeing others affected. 
God often blesses this instinctive feeling in this very way. But is it not to be expected that, at such a time, many will be affected by mere sympathy? And will not such as are thus affected be in great danger of being deceived by taking these tender emotions of sympathy to be the exercises of true repentance, especially as they fall in with those convictions of conscience which all who hear the gospel experience? Is it then judicious, by impassioned discourses addressed to the sympathies of our nature, to raise this class of feelings to a flame, or to devise measures by which the passions of the young and ignorant may be excited to excess? That measures may be put into operation which have a mighty influence on a whole assembly is readily admitted, but are excitements thus produced really useful? They may bring young people who are diffident to a decision, and, as it were, constrain them to range themselves on the Lord's side. But the question which sticks with me is, does this really benefit the persons? In my judgment, not at all, but the contrary. If they have the seed of grace, though it may come forth slowly, yet this principle will find its way to the light and air, and the very slowness of its coming forward may give it opportunity to strike its roots deep in the earth. If I were to place myself in what is called an anxious seat, or should kneel down before a whole congregation to be prayed for, I know that I should be strangely agitated, but I do not believe that it would be of a permanent utility. But if it should produce some good effect, am I at liberty to resort to anything in the worship of God which I think would be useful? If such things are lawful and useful, why not add other circumstances and increase the effect? Why not require the penitent to appear in a white sheet or to be clothed in sackcloth with ashes on his head? And these, remember, are scriptural signs of humiliation. And on these principles, who can reasonably object to holy water, to incense, and the use of pictures or images in the worship of God? All these things come into the church upon the same principle, or devising new measures to do good. And if the anxious seed is so powerful a means of grace, it may soon come to be reckoned among the sacraments of the church. The language of experience is that it is unsafe and unwise to bring persons who are under religious impressions too much into public view. The seed of the word, like the natural seed, does not vegetate well in the sun. Be not too impatient to force into maturity the plant of grace. Water it. Cultivate it, but handle it not with a rough hand. The opinion entertained by some good people that all religion obtained in a revivalist suspect has no just foundation. At such times when the Spirit of God is really poured out, the views and exercises of converts are commonly more clear and satisfactory than at other times, and the process of conversion more speedy. But doubtless there may be expected a considerable crop of spurious conversions, and these may make the greatest show, for the seed on the stony ground seems to have vegetated the quickest of any. And this is the reason that, after all revivals, there is a sad declension in the favorable appearances, because that which has no root must soon wither. In looking back after a revival season, I have thought, how would manners have been if none had come forward, but such as persevere and bring forth fruit? Perhaps things would have gone on so quietly that the good work would not have been called a revival. But ministers cannot prevent the impressions which arise merely from sympathy, neither should they attempt it. 
But when they are about to gather the weed into the garner, they should faithfully winnow the heap. Not that they can discern the spirits of men, but the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The church is no place of safety for the unconverted. Hundreds and thousands are shielded from salutary convictions by their profession and situation in the church. Let ministers be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. They watch for souls as they that must give an account, awful account. From what has been said about the power of sympathy, some may be ready to conclude that all experimental religion and all revivals may be accounted for on this principle without the necessity of supposing any supernatural agency to exist. And if no effects were produced but those excitements which often mingle with religious exercises, this would be no irrational conclusion. But under the preaching of the gospel we find a permanent change of moral character taking place, so great a change that, even in the view of the world who observe it, the subjects appear to be a new man. An entire revelation has taken place in his principles of action, as well as in his sentiments respecting divine things. Now those who would ascribe all experimental religion to mere natural feelings artificially excited must believe that there are no such transformations of character as have been mentioned, and that all who profess such a change are false pretenders. But this ground is manifestly untenable. For no facts are more certain in such reformations, and if there be men of truth and sincerity in the world, they are to be found among those who have undergone this moral transformation. Surely there are no phenomena now taking place in our world half so important and worthy of consideration as a repentance of a habitual sinner, so that he utterly forsakes his wicked courses and takes delight in the worship of God and obedience to his will. Let it be remembered that these are effects observed only where the gospel is preached, and in some instances numerous examples of such conversions from sin to holiness occur about the same time and in the same place. No series of miracles could give stronger evidence of the divine origin and power of the gospel than the actual and permanent reformation of wicked men, and the skeptic may be challenged to account for such effects on any natural principles. But it may still be asked how the person who is the subject of these new views and exercises can know that they are the effects of a supernatural agency. It is readily admitted that we cannot be conscious of the agency of another spirit on ours because our consciousness extends only to our thoughts, and often when new feelings arise in our minds we are unable to trace them to their proper cause. In this case, if we had no revelation from God, we might not be able with certainty to account for such effects. But in the word of God we are distinctly and repeatedly informed that God by his spirit will continue to operate on the minds of men to turn them from iniquity and to cause them to engage with delight in his service. And when we find these very effects taking place in connection with the means appointed to produce them, we can have no doubt about their divine origin, and our faith is confirmed in this doctrine of divine agency by observing the wonderful change produced by the preaching of the gospel upon the most depraved and degraded of the heathen. 
The transformation of character, in thousands of instances now existing, is enough to produce conviction in any mind not rendered obdurate by the prejudices of infidelity. It may be objected that, in many instances, the change professed is not permanent, but temporary, and they who appear saints today may be found to be wallowing in the mire of iniquity tomorrow. These are facts which we cannot gainsay, but we do deny that they go to invalidate the argument from the examples of a permanent and thorough change which do really take place. If there were only one real sound conversion and reformation in a hundred of those who may be religiously impressed, still, the conclusion in favor of a divine influence would be valid. In the spring, we behold the trees clothed and adorned with millions of blossoms which never produce mature fruit, but when in autumn we find here and there apples, large, sweet, and mellow, do we hesitate to believe that this is a good tree which produces good fruit? For reasons already given, it ought not to be expected that all serious impressions should eventuate in a sound conversion. External appearances may be the same to our view, where the causes are entirely diverse. This is especially to be expected when a great many are affected at once and meet in the same assembly. And if these transient appearances did not take place under the preaching of the gospel, our Savior's doctrine of the various effects of the word should not be verified. Ministers of the gospel cannot be blamed for these temporary impressions, unless they use unauthorized means to work upon the sympathies of their hearers. That, through ignorance, vanity, and enthusiastic ardour, many preachers in our day have attempted to produce such excitements, cannot be denied, and by the true friends of vital piety is greatly lamented. Perhaps nothing has so much prejudiced the minds of sensible men against experimental religion as the extravagance and violence of those factitious excitements which have been promoted in various places by measures artificially contrived to work upon the passions and imaginations of weak and ignorant people. And as a preacher must have his reward of glory for his efforts, and all this must be sought out, that their number may be counted and published to the world, alas, alas, poor human nature. I believe that all respectable denominations among us are becoming more and more sensible that something more is requisite in the ministry than fiery zeal. Some who, within our remembrance, disparaged the learned ministry are now using noble exertions to erect seminaries and encourage their young preachers to seek to be learned. This is a mantra of rejoicing, and augurs well for the American church hereafter. I should be unwilling to bring before the public all the scenes that I have witnessed under the name of religious worship, but as the subject of sympathy is still under consideration, I will relieve the reader by a short narrative. Being in a part of the country where I was known, by face, to scarcely anyone, and hearing that there was a great meeting in the neighborhood and a good work in progress, I determined to attend. The sermon had commenced before I arrived, and the house was so crowded that I could not approach near to the pulpit, but sat down in a kind of shed connected with the main building, where I could see and hear the preacher. His sermon was really striking and impressive and in language and method far above the common run of extemporary discourses. The people were generally attentive, 
In so far as I could observe, many were tenderly affected, except that in the extreme part of the house where I sat, some old tobacco planters kept up a continual conversation in a low tone about tobacco plants, seasons, and so on. When the preacher came to the application of his discourse, he became exceedingly vehement and boisterous, and I could hear sounds in the center of the house which indicated strong emotion. At length the female voice was heard in a piercing cry, which thrilled through me and affected the whole audience. It was succeeded by a low murmuring sound from the middle of the house, but in a few seconds one and another arose in different parts of the house under extreme and visible agitation, casting off bonnets and caps, and raising their folded hands, they shouted to the utmost extent of their voice, and in a few seconds more the whole audience was agitated, as a forest when shaken by a mighty wind. The sympathetic wave, commencing in the center, extended to the extremities, and at length it reached our corner, and I felt the conscious effort of resistance as necessary as if I had been exposed to the violence of a storm. I saw few persons through the whole house who escaped the prevailing influence. Even careless boys seemed to be arrested and to join in the general outcry. But what astonished me most of all was that the old tobacco planters, whom I have mentioned and who, I am persuaded, had not heard one word of the sermon were violently agitated. Every muscle of their brawny faces appeared to be in tremulous motion, and the big tears chased one another down their wrinkled cheeks. Here I saw the power of sympathy. The feeling was real and propagated from person to person by the mere sounds which were uttered, for many of the audiences had not paid any attention to what was said, but nearly all partook of the agitation. The feelings expressed were different, as when the foundation of the second temple was laid, for while some uttered the cry of poignant anguish, others shouted in the accents of joy and triumph. The speaker's voice was soon silenced, and he sat down and gazed on the scene with a complacent smile. When this tumult had lasted a few minutes, another preacher, as I suppose he was, who sat on the pulpit steps with his handkerchief spread over his head, began to sing a soothing and yet lively tune, and was quickly joined by some strong female voices near him, and in less than two minutes the storm was hushed, and there was a great calm. It was like pouring oil on the troubled waters. I experienced the most sensible relief to my own feelings from the appropriate music for I could not hear the words sung, but I could not have supposed that anything could so quickly allay such a storm, and all seemed to enjoy the tranquility which succeeded. The disheveled hair was put in order, and the bonnets and so on gathered up, and the irregularities of the dress adjusted, and no one seemed conscious of any impropriety. Indeed, there is a peculiar luxury in such excitements, especially when tears are shed copiously, which was the case here. I attended another meeting in another place where there had been a remarkable excitement, but the tide was far on the ebb, and although we had vociferation and outcrying of a stunning kind, I did not hear one sound indicative of real feeling, and I do not think that one tear was shed during the meeting. Chapter 6 Erroneous Views of Regeneration The Correct View The Operation of Faith Exercises of mind is illustrated in Jonathan Edwards' narrative. The operations of faith still further explain. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.